Good morning. How's everybody today? Good. I want to first, um, we're going to open up and pray, um, but I want to first thank Pastor Jordan and his lovely wife for the invitation today. Um, I want to also just acknowledge and honor any elders or pastors that may be in the house. Um, want to be grateful to them for their leadership and service. Amen. And um, any leaders of the church that might be here, um, deacons, and, you know, we have lots of names for all that good stuff. But I want to um, acknowledge and honor also people that continuously serve faithfully in the church, uh, despite all the things that are going on in your individual lives and family, to still not think of robbery to um, serve the local body. Um, amen. Amen. And I want to encourage all of you, some of you may have been members for, um, and just when I say members, not just of Renaissance, but the household of faith for many, many years. And then some of you may be new believers, but I just want to encourage you to keep pressing. This is a beautiful sight on a Saturday morning that people have come out, and this is a school, but we also consider this the house of worship because the word of God says we're two or, or three are gathered in my name. He's also in the midst. So we may see all of the things around that represent cafeteria, but where the people of God are, the spirit of God is in his holy ground. So um, I thank God that church is not a building, right? It's the people. So I'm looking forward to our time today. I'm going to do uh, some teaching, but it will also be interactive at times. I'll throw out some questions, so feel free. If you have a question as I'm moving through it, I know we have a, a, a time limit, but I want, I want this to be engaging and useful for you. So if you do, and then we will have some question time at the end. That is my, my desire, okay? All right. All right. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this day, a day that we have never seen before. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yes, yes I will make... My boast in the Lord, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Lord God, teach us how to boast in you. Teach us, God, how to rejoice in season and out of season, regardless of circumstances, Lord God. Even if it's not a Sunday, on a Saturday morning, let us rejoice, Lord God, that we were able to get up. Many of us used to do things on Friday night that would prevent us from doing anything that represented you on Saturday. So I'm speaking about even myself, God. I boast in you, Lord God, for your transforming work. Lord God, and I am humbly asking that you would stand up strong in me during this time. Lord God, would you hide me behind the cross? Would you, Lord God, decrease me that you could increase in me, that your people would hear your voice, Lord God, and see your face, Lord God, that I would not be a stumbling block. Help me to not say anything, Lord God, that doesn't come from you. But God, give me boldness and give me conviction to say everything that would make my flesh shudder, Lord God, but bring glory and honor to your name. Lord God, move your spirit throughout this place right now. You know all the people that are before me, Lord God. You know what they are dealing with, what they are struggling with, what their hopes are, what their fears are. Lord God, would you speak to them today, Lord God? Lord God, would you promise them that if they press into you, if they pursue you, Lord God, it is not vain, Lord God. It is not in vain. So meet somebody, some man, some woman today, Lord God, in a unique way. Throw your weight around in this place. 
Show them who's boss. Show them who's God. Show them who's omnipotent, all powerful. Lord God, let us all see who knows everything. Lord God, omniscient, omnipresent. You can be everywhere at the same time, Lord God. Do what only you can do. Lord God, I've prepared, but I need your power. So now breathe on this word, Lord God. Lord God, and send your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to do a teaching work, a transforming work in our hearts and minds. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. So I'm going to. Um, so I know that we originally kind of thought about talking about merging kind of the emotional life, mental health um, with the spiritual life. But there's something that I've noticed um, since I've been in private practice. And hey, how are you? Good to see you. I know them from Epiphany um, that I've been noticing over my years. And I think I kind of put it in the blurb that I passed out for you all is that I believe there's an undiagnosed um, core issue for a lot of our life's issues that we don't often talk about. And you can't even get this diagnosis in the DSM-5. A mental health doctor can't give you this diagnosis. And it really, and it's, and it's not um, minimizing the fact that we have real mental illness. Um, but I think when we talk about the topsy-turbiness of life and all the issues of life, there's something that the enemy is hiding out in that I want to come and expose today that we might get real freedom and deliverance in. So how many people, just if you were to just create a picture in your mind, I want you to think about um, what are some emotional or relational issues that have just either been chronic, um, that you haven't really gotten any relief around. I just want you to think through, what are some long-standing, or maybe they're new, but they are very pervasive right now, very painful, very difficult, um, some relationship stuff that you've got going on, some emotional um, feeling stuff that you have going on. I want you to consider this question. Have you ever felt like you've been under a spiritual attack? Have you ever just felt like there's something going on, um, I can't catch a break? And actually, the more I've noticed me pressing into the Lord, the more I feel like all hell is breaking loose in my life. Like I felt kind of unbothered when I wasn't bothering with God. But it seems like as soon as I started to care, as soon as I started to get serious, stuff started jumping off, right? Um, have you ever been frustrated even in your life when you've tried to disciple or help someone and, and we're supposed to both be saved and we're reading the same Bible, but it sounds sometimes like we speak in different languages. You think that the word of God is kind of like our common ground and, and you've been working with someone the same issues, not getting any movement, not seeing any real change. And then I want to ask you to consider Um, Is my mic okay? All right, man, make sure you can hear me. I also want you to consider what might be some long-standing sin problems. Now, we all can commit any sin, and we like to say that, but we got some some close sins. We got some sins that feel like they have our name on it. And we all might struggle with different stuff. Some of the stuff that are like my sin issues, my, and here's a word, a proclivity. It's a bent. It's a a door that the enemy is constantly coming through. Because remember, the enemy is not a creator. Only Elohim, Elohim, God, creator. The enemy is an imitator, but he usually is coming in a similar way constantly in our life. I want you to consider what are some of the things we've been battling 
for a long time, constantly succumbing to sin issues. We kind of have been treating our sin issues like clean time. You know, like if, if like when people go through drug rehab, they get little they get little coins when they got 30 days. We treat sin issues like 30 days clean, 30 days out of porn, 30 days. I haven't masturbated 30 days. I haven't. And then all of a sudden we fall. And we're kind of in this cycle. We're in this pattern of sin issues with real little victory. OK. One of the things that I want to put before you today, whether it's feeling based, whether it's doing based or whether it's thinking based in terms of our thought life, what I believe is at the core. And we're going to look at the scripture that proves this for us at the core of much of our issues is something called strongholds, strongholds. All right. I want to start off by letting you know in the Bible, whenever you see words like heart, or mind, they're often used interchangeably, right? And if you're taking notes, I want you to think of a triangle. And so the triangle would represent the heart or the mind of man. And at the top of the triangle would be our thoughts or our belief system. And in one corner or the other, doesn't matter left or right, you would have your emotional life or your affections. That's the seed of your feelings, okay? That's your your desires, your wants, your feelings. And then in the other angle of the triangle at the bottom would be your volition or your will, what you do. So the heart or the mind of people, when you think about having a clean heart, a renewed heart, a new heart, a transformed heart, it's our thoughts and beliefs, our our feelings, affections, desires, that's in one corner, and then what we do, okay? But what is always under attack It's not our feelings, even though we stay in our feelings. And truth be told, it's not even what we do. The real attack, the real fight is always in our mind. We are no more than our beliefs. We are no more than our thoughts. As a man thinketh, so is he, so shall he be. You are an amalgamation of your thought life and your beliefs. And we see that that is the playground where the enemy wrecks shop in our life. And that is really essentially where the strongholds are birthed and where they are nurtured. And it is also where they have to be demolished. So if you have a Bible, if you're taking notes, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 6. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version for this particular uh, translation. I probably memorized this verse actually in the King James Version. So when I talk, I'm kind of like bilingual translation. Sometimes I give you a little CSB. Sometimes I give you a little King James. Sometimes I give you a little ESV. Sometimes I give you a little get a re-re. The get a re-re version. I'll let you know when I'm quoting in my own language and dialect. All right. So, but it says, for though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh, all right? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Some translations say are not carnal, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself. Some translations say that exalt itself above the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, to obey Christ. If I were to just ask quickly, how would you describe a stronghold? What is a stronghold? 
Anybody. Doesn't matter if you're wrong. We are, we're here to learn. Yes, ma'am. Something that controls you, okay? Yes, and then we get to you. Yes, sir. Something like a wall that you can't climb over, something you can't give up, get over, okay? Something, what'd you say? Okay, uh-huh, wall, uh-huh. Okay, something like a wall that protects something else. Good, anybody else? Say that again. Okay, something it has perseverance. You try to beat it, but it has strength. Okay, good. So um, we heard a couple. The actual word stronghold. Now I have to tell you, um, in Philadelphia, there is a church called Christian Stronghold, and I was raised around the church. I always thought when I grew up, I always looked at stronghold as like something negative, like kind of like an addiction. You know, something you couldn't beat. You know, something that just kept chasing you. Something you couldn't shake. Right. Um, we often talk about strongholds in terms of addiction. She has a stronghold of addiction. They have a stronghold uh, around prom- promiscuity, a stronghold around gossip. We kind of relate to strongholds that way. So when I <laughs> would always hear this church called Christian Stronghold, I was like, why in the world would somebody name a church? Christian Stronghold. So now I need to repent to the pastor because I didn't talk about that church so much in my mind. <laughs> Because I thought that was the wildest name ever, but I didn't know what a stronghold was. So as I began to study and learn what a stronghold was, it makes sense. But a stronghold is a fortress. So we heard people talking about that. Um, Also translated a fortified place. So Sister Rochelle and the other sister in the back talking about a wall, fortified place. So in the ancient cities, they had fortresses. And so if you could just picture right now in your mind a picture of a castle or a big stone uh, building, not building, but structure that was meant to protect them from the enemy. Right. And so when Paul is using this um, picture and metaphor with the word stronghold, that is like firing off lots of symbolisms in the minds of the ancient people of this time because they know what a fortress looks like. And we know what a fortress looks like. And so they were impenetrable to the enemy, right? They would often have tall uh, ramparts at the top. You ever see those castles? And they have like the edges, it's like a square, come down in like that. That's what we call like a rampart. So people would go way up into the fortress and you could scout out the enemy from a great distance to see if they were coming. But then the walls were thick and strong so that a city could protect itself if it was under attack, all right? And these fortresses were made for protection. But here's the thing we have to understand about a fortress. It can be a place of protection, right? But a fortress is also a prison. A fortress is also a prison. So there are three categories of strongholds, a thing, a place, Safety, covering, and protection. Another way we can think of a stronghold is anything on which one relies. Anything that you depend on becomes your man-made fortress. And also, a stronghold can be an argument or reasoning. It's right there in the definition in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
an argument or reasoning by which someone tries to fortify his opinion or defend himself against his opponent. All right. So because I didn't know what a stronghold was and that church did. I, I later learned that God calls himself a stronghold, that God is a stronghold to those that put their trust in him. Check out this scripture. Um, in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Hear that language? Refuge, protection, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Nahum 1, 7 says the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God is calling himself the stronghold for the believer. But then in the New Testament, Jesus is also referred to our stronghold. How do we know? Because it says the Lord is my rock and fortress, my deliverer. He is my shield. All of these are pictures of of the savior, of what Jesus will do. And then it says, return to your stronghold. O prisoner of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. All right. And we now know that we see the face of God through Jesus. So if God called himself a stronghold, Jesus is also our stronghold. And what did he say? He said he came to set the captives free. Okay, so he is our deliverer because we are often in strongholds. When we are in God, we are in a stronghold of protection. But God is not just the only stronghold. The reason why we have all these problems, the reason why I'm here talking about this today is because there are also demonic strongholds. So here are some definitions I want to give you for what represents a demonic stronghold. It is a place where a particular cause or belief is strongly defended. So think about a belief that is strongly defended in your mind. A stronghold also are false beliefs or attitudes that are contrary to God's word. A stronghold is a false belief or attitude that is unbiblical. A stronghold is the enemy's fortress in your mind against God's truth penetrating. So when the enemy erects a stronghold in your life, it is literally like he has built a thick castle around your heart, which includes your thought life so that you are less likely to receive truth. And because you have succumbed to a stronghold, you, along with the enemy, are defending unbiblical beliefs and attitudes. Demolishing strongholds is not about fighting demons. Demolishing strongholds are not about fighting demons, but rather it is about confronting demonic doctrines and philosophies with truth. Confronting demonic doctrines and philosophies with the truth. Okay? They are fortresses, philosophies, arguments, and reasonings that people use, that we often use to continue in our rebellion against God. What are the excuses, the arguments, the reasoning, 
the high and mighty prideful lofty opinions that help you justify rebelling against God. That's a stronghold. The arguments and reasonings by which a disputant uses to fortify his opinion. So here's the catch. A stronghold is not our sinful behavior per se. So if you, like me, think of a stronghold as a problem that I have, I keep on doing something, I can't break loose of it, even though I don't want to do it, it's not what you do, it's how you think. It is not behavior per se, but rather a stronghold is the lies, unbiblical beliefs, and attitudes that are defended by the enemy that lead to your sinful behaviors. All right, let me give you an example. Someone may say, I have a stronghold uh, around um, uh, sexual immorality. All right, my stronghold is in the area of sexual immorality and all the various forms it can take. But that's behavior. The stronghold is why you do the behavior. Okay, so here's the question. As you look at your own life, remember I told you, picture for yourself your own struggles, emotional struggles, your, the struggles of your life, the sin issues, relationship issues. One of the ways you can begin to identify the stronghold is looking at the behavior, even though the behavior is not the stronghold. The behavior is telling on your thought life. So the question you need to ask is, what must I be thinking what must I believe if I keep doing that? What does my behavior tell on, snitch on about my mind? All right. And remember, I told you that a stronghold, a fortress is a place of protection. Right. But it can also be a prison. So if God is your stronghold, you are in a place of safety and protection. But if you have succumbed to demonic strongholds, you are in prison. So the question you got to ask yourself is, am I being protected based on what I believe and think, or am I being imprisoned? The devil uses strongholds in our lives to deceive us into believing that we are really in a place of protection versus being in prison. He makes the prison look like home. He makes us feel a little bit better in prison. We get three hots in a cot. He lets people come visit us. We get to play in the yard, but we not free. We not free. We not free. A place of protection or prison. Psalm 142.7 says, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Yes. Are some of the things we're dealing with the result of being in prison and not even knowing it? Right. Can you imagine, imagine being secretly dragged off to prison? But that's what the devil does to us all the time based on how, what he convinces us to believe in. All right. So the primary strategy of the devil is deception. Let's unpack a little bit what Paul is telling us about. So he is beginning to interpret this metaphor for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. 
And he starts off by letting us know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of the flesh. So you cannot cuss out a stronghold. You cannot pull a knife on a stronghold. And you cannot shoot up a stronghold. They have to be demolished or cast down with the Bible says divinely powered weapons. Divinely powered weapons. Okay, so let's check this first one out. He says arguments. So after Paul tells us that we are supposed to cast down strongholds, he's actually defining the stronghold for us in the very text. So he first thing he brings up is arguments. These are the reasonings that take shape in the mind and they work out into life and action. Okay, so think about the philosophies of life, the mindsets and beliefs. What might some of those things be? If you're bold enough, what, what some of your own philosophies that defend against God's truth? Or what do we see in the world? Okay. Believing that you, so, it's, so the philosophies of your own life. Okay. What else? Yes. Say that again. If I do it, it's okay because I'll be forgiven. Uh-huh. All right. What about humanism? Right? This idea of self-actualization. Whatever I want, I should be able to have it. We live in a do-me society. One of the greatest sins of the modern Christian's life is the lust for independence and autonomy. Me, myself, and I do it my way. No accountability, no leadership, nobody I have to submit to. I am my own boss. Really what we're saying is I am my own God. Another philosophy, racism. So any form of supremacy, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's misogyny, anything that, what is the argument says, that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. So if God says there is no partiality, if you have a philosophy about being greater than someone else, that is a stronghold. You had one, sis, I wanted to call on you. Mm-hmm. The belief that God's not working for your good. Good. And we're going to actually get to that in just a second when we, when we talk about something else. But here are some of the philosophies of life that we have to be careful of. Okay? Moralism. So really think of any of the isms. Atheism. Gnosticism. All of the isms that are antithetical to Scripture that we try to combined with the Bible. See, we want to be Christians, but we also kind of want to intermingle all of these other philosophies and ways of thinking. We read all these extra books that really don't support the truth of God's word. And it's not that we're reading them so that we can better be better apologists. We actually believe in them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Y'all, y'all are getting ahead of me. Y'all getting ahead of me. But this is good. This is good because what this is also proving is even though we go to, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. So even though we go to things like other philosophies and, and dogmas and ways of thinking and belief systems, 
what is really driving it is really our inability to see ourselves the way God sees us. And the reason why we don't see ourselves the way God sees us is because we don't see God clearly. So, you know, when people say, I want to go on a a journey of self-discovery, really that is the whole in the soul talking because what the soul is really yearning for is God. But we think we will answer the issues of life and the questions of life by knowing thyself. But thyself can only be truly known when you know God, the creator of the self. Okay, so here we go. So what what we're hearing coming up as people are, because see, I'm talking about moralism and all of that, and people talking about, I just don't love me, I don't feel good about me, because really that's where the rub is. Satan knows we really feel that way, so we go to all that other stuff because we are looking for significance, because we don't believe, i.e. stronghold, that it is in God. So remember I said strongholds are arguments. But it's not just arguments that we make. Strongholds are also arguments or accusations against God. So we got arguments, but strongholds at the core of all of it is an accusation against God. That's the part we miss. So let me just tell y'all right now, Satan really doesn't care about you being depressed. Like he's not really out to make us depressed. He's not really his, he's not really like waking up talking about, I want to see how I can make them feel super lonely and isolated today. Satan does not really care one way or the other whether you're rich or you're poor. What Satan is always after is God's glory. God's glory. And so he is always in our hearts and in our minds and in our feelings and in our belief systems making an accusation against God. How do we know? If we go to the book of Job, okay, remember, Satan never called out Job's name. God offered Job up. Satan showed up making an accusation against God. So he's essentially, now I'm about to give you all the ghetto re-re version of the text. So essentially what Satan is doing is saying, your people will not love you, serve you, worship you if you took all the good stuff away from them. And then he says, have you considered my servant Job? He's like, child, pleased with Job because Job is the richest man in us. He got all that cattle. He got all them cute kids. He got a wife. I don't know if she's tripping or not, but he got a wife. (laughs) He's like, he's blessed. Of course he goes to church every week. Of course he's willing to serve in ministry. Job is blessed. He's basically telling God, if you stop blessing your people, they would not serve you. They would not worship you. And so he says, okay, you can touch him. He lets him do all of this stuff to Job. I know Job was probably like, is this a spiritual attack? What? He lets him do all this stuff to Job because through Job's faithfulness, what Job was also doing, even if he wasn't clear about it, is he was demolishing the accusation against God that his people would only serve him if everything went all right. It's an accusation. So you got to think, what are the accusations that the devil is using in your life? The one thing he wanted Job to do is what his wife told him to do. Curse God and die. The devil wanted Job to think the way his friends were thinking. And it really is going along with what some of you are saying, that God is not good. So here are some of the accusations that the devil often uses against us and in us, against God. God is not good. 
God does not love me. God is not enough. God is not concerned about me. God is not really focused on my sin. God is not with me when I'm suffering. God does not speak to me. God wants his children to work hard to perform well for his favor. God is not all powerful. God can't save me or help me. God does not want the best for me. God can't accept or love someone as bad as me. God cares for other Christians more than he cares for me. God does not answer prayers. God doesn't have an actual plan for my life. And we could go on and on. You can think of what are some other accusations that God has raised up, that the enemy has raised up in your life so that when you're going through trauma and drama, what is he really trying to convince you to believe about God? Think about it. Think about what you're going through in your relationships. Think about what you're going through in some of your health challenges. Think about what you may be going through in your financial challenges. Think about what you might be going through in some of your emotional challenges. If you were to wind it all the way back to the core, what is God trying, what is the devil trying to get you to believe that is false about God? Or what is true about God that the enemy wants to convince you is false? Can anybody think of something? It might be something we named. It might be something else that shows up for you. No rush. Based on what I'm going through, based on what my struggle is, what must that be mean I believe about God? I've been tricked into believing about God. Yes, ma'am. God has abandoned me. God has abandoned me. God has left me. Yes. So it, whatever you're going through, that's not really what Satan cares about. He cares about you getting to the place where you could say, God must have abandoned me. You got it? So remember, God, the enemy is trying to rob God of glory. He's using the drama and trauma of your life to convince you to drive the getaway car. He's robbing God of glory. He just wants to hitch a ride from you based on you being angry, disappointed at God, based on you being unknowledgeable of the word, based on you giving up. Drive me to the throne of God to rob him of glory. And you can sit in a car and have a pity party and mope, but I'm going to get the glory. And thank you for the ride. Thank you for the ride. All right. Here we go. Lofty opinions or pretensions. So we got arguments, and that's arguments slash accusations. This making sense? Anybody have a question or want to say something based on where we are right now? No question, no comment. Y'all with me? All right. So lofty opinions or pretensions. So we said we have to cast down arguments, right, and lofty opinions or pretensions. Now check this out. The word says that are raised against the knowledge of God. So remember I told you about those little checker things? Now y'all know I don't play Fortnite. I don't know how to talk about this kind of stuff, so work with me. But you know them little boxes that's in the castle. Y'all, okay. Amen. See, I wish I had a picture. 
All right, those were what we call raised ramparts, okay? And so how I want you to understand this, lofty opinions, pretensions, the raised ramparts, that's our arrogant, prideful disposition. What are the things about ourselves, our thinking, that causes us to be arrogant in the face of God? Prideful. And that those are the things that repel the knowledge of God from penetrating. So, so think of it as what areas of your life do you engage in self-promotion, lust of pride and independence and autonomy, and you want to be in charge of one's life? So this is where we see intellectual doubt appearing humble, but you keep God at arm's length. So people that engage in intellectual doubting, God can handle our doubts, but if you're using your intellect as a means to not embrace the truth of God's word, that is a raised rampart. So it says raised against the knowledge of truth. So for a visual, if truth is the word of God, your arrogant opinion and philosophy and disposition tries to superimpose yourself above God's word. As if to think what you think and what you believe and how you've reasoned and figured out life, even though he said, where were you when I put the sun in the sky? Right? Do you, do you know where the snow come from? Okay, even though you do this, you try to act as if the word of God is underneath you. So you might acknowledge it, but you acknowledge your word greater. That's what it means to have a raised rampart or a lofty opinion. So condescending cynicism or a claim of intellectual independence that loves to debate theology without ever adoring or worshiping the living God. So people who like to debate theology but not adore the theos of theology. Arrogant claims, prideful thoughts, selfish ambitious, pompous acts that are barriers for you receiving and submitting to truth. Every argument or excuse is always used to rationalize sin. How do we rationalize our sin? We can't, we can't do it consistently as saved folk without being grieved and sorrowful unless we come up with a reason why we think it's okay. I'm stressed. I'm tired. Nobody ever loved me, so now I got to put myself first. I deserve this. God understands. We even try to pull God in. Here's some of my favorites. Me, myself, and I. Here's one. Boss chick. I'm a boss chick. I'm grown. I'm doing me. God wants me to be happy. Only God can judge me. Now, in this one, Lord, it makes me want to jump out the window. Because the truth of the matter is, Pastor Mason always says, you better let folk judge you down here. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God. I mean, the arrogance of saying only God can judge me. God said, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the body and put it in hell. God, 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 only God can judge me. Here's the other one. I'm not letting another man tell me what to do. Sisters, I'm talking to the women. Okay. I have a personal relationship with God. That's the worst thing that came out the church. That used to be, I thought that was a scripture. I said that my whole life. 
I have a personal relationship with God. And all that means is you can't tell me nothing. That somehow I know what y'all reading in this Bible, but God spoke to me. And that's the other one. God spoke to me. Now, if I ever was going to be close to fighting somebody in the church, it was when they sang no. Amen. Y'all recording. I ain't going to be too wild. But God, that whole God spoke to me thing, or God didn't tell me that, he got 66 books where he has tried to communicate to us very clearly he has spoken to you. So if you think or are believing something or are doing something and you cannot back it up in the Bible, you are wrong. We need to, and now I'm not talking about the people in the world. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about us. Because, see, non-believers don't have strongholds. They just blind. They just in bondage. They're dead. I'm talking about Christian folk with strongholds because they will not submit to this word. And we are God stamping. It's like taking a stamp with God's name and approval on it on our life so that when our family members challenge us, when our friends challenge us, when the pastors and leaders challenge us, we don't want to hear them, but we really don't want to hear from God. Right. And here's the other thing we need to stop saying, which is, a, which is really prideful arrogance. Somebody gives you truth, and you say, I'm processing that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> if another person tells me they're processing something, people are processing their way right to hell. Let me tell you. Processing is buying time to stay in rebellion. Now, I'm not saying for all of us processors that there is not a moment in time when you really do have to think about something. But I'm talking about when you are using the excuse of still thinking about it, I'm chewing on it, I'm meditating on it, I'm going to spend some quiet time with God. You're not spending quiet time with God. He didn't already told you. And he didn't send the man or woman of God to tell you. He didn't send the friend that you sit next to. He sent the person that's in small group with you to tell you about yourself, and they have smothered grace all over it. Stop telling people that they are judgmental when they are coming after you because they love you. Stop being addicted to grace when really what you want is just somebody to let you do what you want to do. And people have been scared to confront. People are scared to, to lovingly share truth with you because people push people away with this phoniness of don't judge me. God told me I'm okay or God didn't tell me that when he has clearly spoken or we're processing. We need to stop that. We need to stop that. We need to thank God when people come alongside us and love us enough to tell us the truth. Because what you are wrestling with when you push away truth is a stronghold. It's a belief system. It's a fortress. You're defending, deflecting, putting up walls against truth. And if you're in a healthy church and if you got people that really love you, the first thing people usually do is they run. And we're so afraid of people running and leaving that we've also been handicapped with being able to give the truth. Yes, truth with grace, with love. But even you, even if you're a leader, 
even if you're a teacher, even if you've been walking with God for a long time, ask yourself, do I have raised ramparts? Do I have lofty opinions? Do I have prideful attitudes and dispositions where I say in my soul, who going to check me, boo? <laughs> like we live our life like that. We don't let our wife speak into your life as a husband. Wives, you don't let your husband speak into your life. Friends don't let each other speak into their lives, especially if you used to run with them and you saw the dirt that they did. Now everybody is held hostage by their past sin so nobody can give you a word. Somebody's past sin that they've repented for doesn't disqualify them from having a prophetic voice to you. All right. So how do we begin to see how this plays out in our life? I want us to just quickly move through the temptation of Jesus as it appears in the book of Luke. Because what I really want us to leave with, and this is how we'll wrap up for our time, is how do we really fight against strongholds? What are some of the strategies? So, so if we look at Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13, I'm not going to read line by line, but we see that after Jesus was baptized, he was led away into the wilderness by the Spirit. So sometimes the test... And, and things that we have to face, even when we encounter the enemy, yes, God has set us up for that, right? Just like he set up Job, all right? But that means that we are still called to pass the test, all right? And so remember, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. And the first thing he says to him, he doesn't come to him on day two. He doesn't come to him on day 20. Day 40, when he hungry, hungry. Now the enemy shows up, and he says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So here's how I want you to begin to break down the anatomy of the temptation, even for a stronghold of unbelief. The very first thing that the enemy always tries to do is he strategically waits until you are most vulnerable. Because when you are most vulnerable, you are desperate for relief. And when you are desperate for relief, you are more prone to unbelief. When you are desperate for relief, you are more prone to unbelief. He says to him, if you are the son of God. The second thing that the enemy always tries to do when he's setting us up for a temptation or to believe a stronghold is he tries to get us to question our identity. He is Jesus and the devil is saying, if you are the son of God. So when in your life do you either question your salvation or even if you know you are saved, the enemy wants you to feel like some kind of stepchild of God. That even though you might be in the family, you are not the favorite. You are not close. You appear to see other, it appears that other people have God's ear and heart more than you. All right, what else does he say? He goes on and says um, in verse 4, so he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and the, dead, the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all authority because it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Okay, one of the things he tries to do is to trick you into believing he has something to offer you that you don't already have. He's telling Jesus he will give him something that already belongs to Jesus. 
the splendor of the world, the kingdoms. So what in your life has the enemy blinded you or tricked you into believing is absent in your life but is inherently present because you are saved? Because you are a part of the ecclesia, because you are the beloved son and daughter of God. What has he falsified as something he can offer you that God has already granted you? The enemy often tries to offer us peace, and God has already given us peace. He tries to offer us hope, and, the, and the God has already given us hope. He tries to offer us security, but God has often already given us security. And then the other thing that he often does is he mixes some lie with some truth. He says to him, when he says, throw yourself down, in verse 9, he says, if you are the son of God, another identity question, throw yourself down from here. So now he's asking us to test God. For it is written, here's a little mix with the truth. He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the scone. He's quoting truth, but it's intermingled with all those lies. And that is one of, that's why deception. So we need what is called wisdom, which is to know knowledge, know truth and ability to apply it. But we also need to understand that it is important to be discerning. Because discernment is different from wisdom in that discernment separates truth from lie. The actual word discern means to separate, okay? And to know when to believe what. So in the scripture, just a quick example, when it says, um, answer a fool according to his folly, um, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then it says, answer a fool, don't answer a fool, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But first it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Um, don't answer, wait, I'm messing it up. Don't a- answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Right? And so in, in one passage, we have both God telling us sometimes we need to answer a fool. But then he's also telling us sometimes we don't need to answer a fool. Wisdom is knowing that both of those things are true. Discernment is knowing when to do which. You see the difference? When do we do which? All right, so he's trying to get at our identity. He's mixing lies with truth. He tricks us into believing that he has something to offer us that we don't already have, and he strategically waits till we are most vulnerable. And the devil through all of this is always, through every stronghold, which is a belief system, He's always trying to offer you an artificial means of satisfying your deepest needs and desires. An artificial, substandard, substitute savior type of means. So the reason why so many addictions are prevalent is because drugs work. People get high because they work. That's the thing we should just tell everybody. All of this stuff, alcohol, drugs, porn, it all works. If, if your goal in life is to just be happy and carefree, then we can just all go to an a, a exotic beach, get naked, get high, drink, smoke, and have sex with whoever we want to. And guess what? You will feel better for a little while. It's temporary. 
The substitute savior, the artificial means of satisfying your needs based on an unbelieving system of thinking is always a temporary satisfaction, but the devil always overpromises and underdelivers. He offers cheap, quick, substitute saviors that don't last or satisfy. So in the addiction literature, this actually comes out of AA, there's this acronym called HALT. Some of you may have heard it, H-A-L-T. And this is really great when we think about how do we kind of keep our system strong or how do we begin to notice when we're vulnerable for the attacks of the enemy. And it stands for H is hungry, A is angry, L is lonely, T is tired. Never let yourself get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, and too tired without spiritual support and community. So I want to ask you, what are you all hungry for? Think about it. What are you really hungry for? What do you want? What are you craving? It becomes an avenue for the enemy to set up strongholds in that area because he knows what the flesh wants is to be satisfied. And so when we have unrecognized vulnerabilities, the enemy comes in to molest us in those areas. What are you constantly angry about? We all get angry. But I'm talking about what's your like hot button anger issue? What is the anger that you carry that causes you to sometimes act up, hurt other people, that even embarrasses you? And what is that simmering anger that you carry? So you smile on the outside. Nobody even knows that you are in the land of angerdom, but you are constantly vexed and angry. What is that really about? What is the anger you don't really talk about? Or what is the anger that you can't stop talking about? Y'all know we got people in our lives, they talk about the same thing all the time. And are you chronically experiencing life as if you are lonely? Now we know the Bible says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we know that we're never truly alone. But sometimes those scriptures don't seem to cut it when you're really alone. It's nice when somebody who's going home to their spouse tells you, God is with you. You'd be like, yeah, okay. But it's true. Are you chronically feeling lonely? And do you wrestle with God about that? Is there a stronghold in your mind around being left abandoned, not cared for by God in whatever state you're in? And, and let it be known, you can be married and lonely. You can feel lonely in a marriage. And lastly, what are you tired about? Are you physically tired or are you emotionally sick and tired of being sick and tired? What wearies you? What vexes you? So if we think about what Jesus did, and here we go, we're going to end with the practical part. 
Jesus answered every temptation, everything that the devil tried to erect in his mind in terms of an unbelieving system of thinking. He says, how you, what I want you to know is how you answer a temptation for a stronghold all depends on your knowledge of the word and your willingness to deny your flesh and your commitment to wait on God. Let me say that again. How you answer a temptation for a stronghold all depends on your knowledge of the word, your willingness to deny your flesh, and your commitment to wait on God. There is an intellectual component to our faith. It's not just zeal with no knowledge. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you studying? Are you pursuing God? Are you taking time to really be in his word? Not just for the intellectual pursuit of it, but because you are desperate and needy and dependent on God. And the only way to truly know him is based on how he's revealed himself. Yes, we pray. Yes, we worship. Yes, we hear the preach word, which is also a way that we come into deeper knowledge of God. But do you take time, 24 hours in a day, I want you to ask yourself, how do I spend my 24 hours? And do I try to hit it and quit it with God? Am I addicted to devotionals? But do I ever, do I make a consistent habit of laboring, spending time listening to the voice of God, getting counsel through the scripture? I was in private practice. Counseling is great and counseling is needed. But we also have to lay at the feet of the Savior and let him speak to us. Biblical illiteracy is really one of the secret diseases of the church. So don't y'all be up in here tutoring these children and you won't even get in the word. Your own word. So that the overflow of your life is running with living water, living water. All right. He says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I mean, chapter 10, 5, this is what we're supposed to do with the stronghold, y'all. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's it. Strongholds of thoughts. First step in defeating a stronghold One of the divinely powered weapons we have is our ability to notice it and take it captive. So this is what I want you to consider uh, making a citizen's arrest in your mind. To literally arrest your thoughts. And the New Testament word that, that represents taking thoughts captive is translated to make a prisoner of war. When you take your thoughts captive, you are taking your thoughts and you are making them POWs. You are now putting the thought in prison. Now, what I love about this is if you make an arrest, you are not responsible for the outcome of the arrest. When a cop arrests you, he does not pronounce the sentence on you. The judge does. The cop's job is to notice strange behavior or illegal activity, put a stop to it, and then take you before the judge so the judge can decide whether this thing is guilty or innocent. Should this thought get life or should it be able to live? And that's all we have to do. 
Take the thought captive. What next? And present it before the knowledge of God. So when, when Christ confronts our thoughts, because we have the power to do that, it's literally like I have a wild thought, like I am not good enough. I, God does not love me, right? Or I am, I am not special to God. And then we say, wait, 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 that doesn't sound right. I don't, I don't believe as a Christian I'm supposed to be thinking that way. You just take the thought, you stop, take a moment to acknowledge it, and then now you are presenting it before Christ. So that now you can flip the scriptures and how lovely are your thoughts toward me, oh God. What does the Bible say about you are fearfully and wonderfully made? So you do not have to pronounce a sentence. We just have to pause long enough to not let the wild thought run free in our mind, take it captive, and present it before Christ. So it means sometimes we will have to slow our roll. Now, if you have the knowledge stored up in you, because that is the, the, the purpose of reading scripture, you're able to really address it. But what if you have a crazy thought and you don't know? What does God say about this? Well, one, you can seek counsel from someone you know knows, but the best thing is you can look, does it say anywhere in scripture something about this thought, this thing I've been dealing with? And then you need to load up on scripture that combats the actual strongholds, unbelieving thoughts that you have in your head. Does that make sense? Okay, so if we were to um, take a, create a chart, how to take thought captives. I want you to just do a couple columns, a few columns, because this is something I really want you to practice in your daily life, okay? So in number one, in the first column, I want you to write the thoughts, arguments, lofty opinions, pretense, all that kind of stuff, the thought that you have or the belief that you have, okay? That's number one. Number two is identify the accusation that the enemy is making about God, because remember, Every thought is really saying something he wants you to believe about God that is not true. All right? Number three, I want you to consider what is your typical response based on the enemy's lies. So when you have a thought that is based in a lie, how do you typically feel? Or what is your normal response? Does it cause you to get a drink? Does it cause you to be angry? Does it cause you to withdraw and isolate? What is your typical response when you have this thought? Then I want you to identify, just like we did in the temptation of Jesus and Luke, what is Satan attacking in me that is helping me to hold on to the stronghold? What are my vulnerabilities? What am I hungry for? What might be I angry about? What am I feeling lonely about? Where, what am I tired of? How is he attacking me based on a vulnerability? Because sometimes we don't know how to even recognize that we're vulnerable because we live in a society that says do, 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 go, go, go. We don't even stop long enough to feel that we might even hurt in our bodies. I would have people in counseling and they're just on to the next, on to the next. And we would do some mindfulness where they just had to sit still and be still. And all of a sudden they noticed their back was hurting. I mean, physiologically, we carry pain that we ignore. And if we press on because it's supposed to be strong to keep going when you're hurting, to keep going when you're tired, to not eat, to not rest, to not take care of your body, if that is the typical like, life that we live, especially in this culture, even Christians, we do that to our emotional life. 
We're angry, we're sad, we're lonely. We feel rejected and abandoned, we're jealous, we're envious. We have all these emotions and thoughts going on that we just displace. We suppress, we push aside, and we just keep on serving the Lord. And all of these things God cares about, okay? Next step is you have to apply truth so that you can destroy the lie and the unbelieving mind system. So this is the part that takes time. And so since we have proclivities, certain sins or certain issues that we're constantly struggling with, I want you to begin to identify what are all the lies that I believe, the isms, the philosophies, what are my arrogant dispositions, all of those things that trip me up, what might be all my lies, and I need you all to deliberately make time to find Bible to counteract those lies. The only way you defeat a lie is with the truth. And it has to be applicable. All, all scripture is profitable, but all scripture is not applicable to every situation. So do not have a problem around lust and you reading, um, and you talking about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's not the right scripture. That's a good scripture, praise God. But that's not the one you need. You cannot bring a knife to a gunfight. So you have to bring the appropriate weapon based on the issue. And so we need to fortify our knowledge of God's word specifically around the issues of our heart. So you got to sit down and do that. That takes time. I have journals where I've done that. And you know what? Some of those scriptures I've worked to, uh, to put to memory. I used to have a little three by five, um, like a little um, three by five flashcard thing with the ring on it. I used to stick that joker in my pocketbook because during certain seasons of my life, I am so under attack, so vulnerable and so prone to blow it. Like know thyself in that way, too, that I needed something that I could just grab a hold of quickly because maybe I hadn't committed all those scriptures to memory yet. And a lot of them still, you know, we, I mean, come on. We, we, are, we, we have great minds, but we can't do it all. God said he knows our frame and that we are dust. There's no shame. You're not competing with some preacher or some other person that can rattle off scripture or whatever. It's like work with what you have. But I know one thing, if we can memorize songs and jingles to commercials, we can memorize scripture because it's repetition and we like it. But you have to dine on it. You have to eat it. You have to be like Job. The word of God was my very necessary food and I did eat of it. Do we see the word of God as necessary? Okay? So you have to get the scripture and you have to apply it. And then the last step is you have to have an honest discussion with yourself. How should I be responding based on God's truth? Because here's the thing. You apply truth, but then you have to be obedient to truth. And for many of us, we actually know truth that we just don't obey. I mean, we could all stand to learn more scriptures, but Lord have mercy if we would just obey the scriptures we already know. Like if, if I just started doing what I did know, I don't need to collect more scripture. God, like be faithful to that word you memorized in 10th grade. Like be faithful to that one. So obedience. Obedience. That's the, that's the evidence of a disciple. 
a learner, a student. And see, the difference between someone who is just like loving theology and acquiring biblical knowledge is that the purpose of a disciple is to learn so that they can do. And so we know a lot of stuff, but we need to act like we know. Okay? Lastly, Satan cannot possess your life. Okay? Satan cannot possess your life, but he can have authority and influence in your life. If you are a believer, you cannot be possessed. I wanted to share this example because it just happened to me on uh, Thursday. I had a young lady from the church that wanted to meet with me, and she was concerned because she was having sensations and different experiences where she felt like she was literally demonically possessed as a believer, but she was very clear that she, was, she had confessed Christ and uh, repented of her sins and was a believer. And so I kind of told her what we supposed to tell, that if you're a Christian, you can't be possessed by a demon. You can't be possessed, but you can be under demonic or spiritual attack. We went through that whole thing. But the more she talked, you know, I thought we were just going to talk about a breakup. I don't know what I thought the conversation was. I was so unprepared for that one because I thought this was going to be a quick little 10, 15-minute meeting. So now I'm like, now, and I'm praying. Um, I, I constantly sometimes pray when somebody's talking, and I feel like, Lord, I don't know what to say. You ever been in a situation like that? You're like, Lord, I don't know what to do. So I'm praying. I'm like, God, give me wisdom. What do I say? How do I navigate this? So but what I began to notice, and thanks be to God, because I knew I was coming here, and this kind of thing had been on my heart. So I said, she's really dealing with strongholds, because what she began to tell me is that, she had researched, now see here's, and I'm like, researched where? She researched that there was a demon, because uh, she was saying that she felt like the demon was coming and having sex with her at night and all that kind of stuff. She said she had researched that there's a demon, and she gave me the name of the demon that marries you in the spirit and then has sex with you in your dreams. And I'm like, where'd you get that? And she was telling, I was like, is that, I said, did you get that from the Bible? Because you know, sometimes I, I play Columbo with people like, so that they can hear themselves talk, because they need to just hear what they're saying. And I said, okay, so where did you get that information from? And she was telling me, and she really believed it. And then she started talking about, and another one of my issues is I have soul ties. So I said, what is a soul tie? So she started explaining to me. I said, but soul ties, that's not really a biblical concept. We talk about that. That's this new agey thing, but there's no biblical evidence, especially for a believer. And so as we talked, she had kind of accumulated some extra biblical knowledge and she had some beliefs and things that are not rooted in scripture that though she was a Christian, those things were her truth. And so she was struggling to understand her walk and relationship with God and understand how to deal with what was happening to her because she really believed in soul ties from a former relationship and she really believed that she could be possessed by a demon and she really believed that a demon could take over her entire life not just attack her. And so here's the thing. If one of the things the Lord helped me to do with her is if you have unbiblical belief systems, right, that are in violation of the truth that God gave her, whatever uncomfortable spiritual attacks or experiences she was having were intensified based on truth she had put her confidence in that was not of the Bible. And so just, I said, it may seem like a very small nuance to you, to say Christians can't be possessed by the devil, possessed by the demon, because we have now been filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And that's the key. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we go on in the sanctification process of being filled. The enemy, if, if you have a cup of water, and if I had a water bottle, that's a better example. If you have a water bottle and it is, and it is tight and it is filled with water, that's like our life. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life and we are now filled with him. We are now under his influence, which is why the scripture said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so nobody is more anointed than anybody else. We all got the whole Holy Spirit. Some of us just appropriating the Holy Spirit at different measures. Okay, so if all of our daddies was uh, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and he gave us all ATM cards in the passcode, I'm taking out millions of dollars as often as I can. Y'all can get $5 every now and then if you want to. But we all got access to the same power because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. What she's experiencing in terms of an attack is like the enemy throwing Kool-Aid up against the water bottle. It can't get in, but it can impact the outside. It can experience, in fact, your life. So a lot of us filled with the spirit, blood washed, baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost, but we are still experiencing spiritual attacks. But the Holy Spirit says he not only fills us, but he seals us. He seals us. So her lack of confidence and what God had done for her and her unbelieving thoughts about these other things that are not rooted in scripture were causing her extra distress in her spiritual attack. So one of the things I want you to think about is when I am going through any kind of drama or trauma in my life, am I experiencing a more intensified attack because I am believing and rooting my thoughts and identity and, and, and arguments and things that God did not say were true which causes me to hold loosely or reject what God did say was true. You are no more than your thoughts. So the enemy cannot possess you, but he can become a squatter in your mind. A squatter who tries to move in and run ramshack because that's not his home. He doesn't belong there. Squatters take over in your mind, mess with your thoughts, mess with your beliefs, and then end up affecting your behavior and your feelings. People of God, if I can just leave you with this, be renewed, be renewed in your mind. That's where transformation happens. Identify strongholds that are in your life and use divinely spiritual weapons to cast those things down. Begin to apply truth from God's word to every unbelief that you have, every thought, every argument, Every arrogance, every opinion that is not like God, that is not rooted in his word, so that you can now fight lies with truth. And when you start thinking right, when you start having new thoughts and right biblical beliefs, you can have right actions. And guess what? It has nothing to do with your feelings. The world tells us Follow your heart. But the job of the believer is to not follow our heart, but to lead our heart. And much of the Christian life, even though we think right, we might not feel right because so much of what we do while we're on this earth is the opposite of how we feel. Like if that could become your new mantra, that as a believer who is committed and faithful to Jesus Christ, I will often spend much of my time on planet Earth doing the opposite of how I feel. 
Stop letting your feelings be your God and let God be your God. Because when you think right, you can do right. And eventually your feelings will put on track shoes and catch up. Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, I give you praise and I give you glory for this time. I pray, Father, that it was edifying for your people. And I pray most of all that you received glory. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart were acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, thank you. God bless y'all. Anybody have any questions with just the remainder of time? Did you want to come up or... Yes, Mary. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like it's not just a single incident. And I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just I'm just thinking of people in my life or myself yeah. and there's drama tied to it, how that plays into it. Yeah. So that's a great question. One of the things I want to just say, not to minimize what you're saying, but to give kind of a, a holistic answer first, is that none of us have been more traumatized by anything greater than sin. So sin is the number one trauma because sin is the trauma that brings death, right? So we can have all types of trauma, but the only one that came with a guarantee of death, right, is sin. So we're all recovering from the trauma of sin, right? So for all of us that feel like we don't have any trauma, we are, we've all got trauma. We all have trauma. So, but in the, in the earth, we are also dealing with the trauma of our own sin and we're dealing with the trauma of sins of others. Right. And so I'm not talking about kind of like a microwave approach, like if people are dealing with like sexual abuse and people are dealing with physical abuse and abandonment and, and, and all types of trauma. In fact, in this country, um, we, we often talk about um, sexual trauma as the, the number one trauma. But the number one trauma statistically, even in our culture, is abandonment. But it's just counted different, like all of the children who are just abandoned, all of the people who are just left. Most people are dealing, recovering from the trauma of abandonment more than the, the trauma of sexual abuse. But I believe that we have to get help for that. I believe, you know, even as a clinician, I, I, am, I am not opposed to the practice of psychology and counseling. And, and even all of the medicine that people can take to deal with life's issues, I just believe science is of God. Look, the whole earth declares of God, God's glory, and I just submit science to the truth of God's word. So where science is illegitimate compared to scripture, I reject it. But where it is in accordance with scripture, I accept it. So, I mean, there are people that really need to work through many of those things because the strongholds are tied to those. Most of the unbelieving thoughts that we have have to do with, in some form or fashion, sins that have been committed against us, um, whether it's physical or just the mental things, um, the, the, the mental dis, um, um, destruction to our character and our dignity. I mean, people are recovering from people not believing in them. Like, there are lots of things that we have to work through. The, the key is that if we see any form of deliverance or help, 
as greater than the deliverance and help that God provides, or if we see that as separate from God, like if we don't see God in counseling, like if we're not able to see God in medicine, then we're, we're, we are looking at worldly solutions as something that we need because God is insufficient. And so I think that we need to be a community that thinks about health holistically. We're not just like name it and claim it, you know, grabbing it, you know, whatever we say, all of that stuff, blabbing and grabbing, all that stuff we do, laying hands on people, but not actually helping people with the real issues of their life. We need to be a community that is wise and able to address the whole man, the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. And so we have to find, I think, who you go to is also important because I think where we could go to um, an unbeliever who is a cardiologist and they can operate us on our physical heart, sometimes we get ourselves into problems when we go to counseling for the issues of our spiritual lives and our emotional lives and they are completely rejecting God. So I say find safe places where you have strong Christians in these atmospheres that are quality trained because you can know the Bible and be a horrible counselor. That's not everybody's gift. Everybody don't need to be sitting down talking to everybody. You don't have the bandwidth for it. And so we got a lot of people who need to teach the Bible and get off the couch, you know, or across from the couch, and they need to get on the couch, right? So, so I, th- I think we need to help people see that and help, and help people see God in that. When you, when you, study, this, the, when you study Job, I, I recently did a um, conference around sexual abuse survivors and things like that, and here's the, the, the rub. Whenever you're doing counseling or whenever you're working with someone or whenever you're struggling with these issues in your own life, here's what we got to grapple with. We got to grapple with the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God, right, and the um, omniscience of God in our suffering. And what I mean by that is someone who has suffered greatly has to reconcile that God is all-loving while he is also all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. So that means God knew my trauma was getting ready to occur. It means God was omnipresent. He was there when my trauma occurred. And it means that God is omnipotent. My God had the power to stop it, and he didn't. And we have to help people through the gospel reconcile that all of that is true, and God is still good and perfect, and that he has a redemptive plan even in our suffering. Amen. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I know. I know. So a lot of times they aren't under insurance. It's, it's so terrible. I know. Which is why. Well, so there are. So I know of um, New Life Today, which is kind of an international, a, a global group um, that. If you go on their website, you can punch in your zip code and they can try to find a Christian clinician in the area where you are to kind of match you with. I think you can talk to people before you go have an appointment or you can try people out and you can ask questions around their faith, around their competency. Like you can ask questions. You're a consumer too. You're paying for this one way or the other um, to see if it's a good fit. And then I would also trust God. I mean, that's something that you would pray about. In the same way we pray for everything else, God, lead me to someone that can really help me walk through this. I I would also say in the meantime, or if those resources aren't available or if we can't afford it, 
Um, who in our own community, like do we have, that's why I always advocate, you know, as churches are growing, not every church has one, but what system of biblical counseling, maybe even under the, the, the heading of discipleship, because discipleship can be a form of that. I mean, we know our limitations and everybody can't handle every single thing, but in what ways does the church provide safety and space for some of those things? And even if it's not one-on-one, maybe thinking about ways to develop groups peer-led groups to deal with a lot of research shows that peer-led groups are very successful. You just got to keep them small and consistent so that trust and respect is developed. Um, so that's kind of what I would say. Yes, Neil. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So a couple things. One is, if you go through the 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 actual practice of trying to identify the thought, even to think about your thoughts, can be a revolutionary concept for people. Like, I'm actually going to investigate my thought life um, and to actually go through the steps of identifying the thought, how I react, what are the vulnerabilities that I notice are around me when those thoughts show up, how I tend to respond, and what is the truth from God's word that I can apply, and am I willing to be obedient to what it says. Getting accountability around that, like maybe sometimes, you know, instead of going to movies, get some people together and let's talk about our thoughts. Like, you know, so that people are aware and that you, and if you can teach it, you know it. So become familiar with that. And I think the more you expose yourself to your thought life and become an investigator of it, it'll be hard for it to shake. So like, if I say, don't think of a pink elephant, pink elephant, pink elephant, pink elephant. Now, like in five hours, all y'all gonna be thinking about pink elephant. So you just want to constantly expose yourself to it. Look at, remember, you can work from behavior down. Look at your life. What is not going well in your life? Start there and ask the question, what does this reoccurring behavior or attitude suggest I believe? How is my behavior, remember, telling on me? How is my behavior snitching on me? And then the other thing, use community. I would say get, go to about three or four people. Maybe some people that are really close to you and some people you might know in kind of periphery and ask them, what do you notice about my life? Like, what if we did that? <laughs> Invited people to give us an assessment and you promise, pinky promise, you're going to speak to them again. <laughs> but to really give people permission to give you feedback. What are some things I do well? What, what don't I do well? How do you experience me? Do you notice any unhealthy patterns in my life? We don't get real with each other like that. We find people that we can talk about other people with. But we don't talk about ourselves with one another. And we make it an issue of loyalty to find a friend that won't bring up our junk. And we call that my BFF. <laughs> yes, sir.
Absolutely. Yes. And actually, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't want to leave the impression that the lie originates within us. I believe, so some lessons are taught explicitly, but most lessons are caught. So most of the things we tend to believe we're just getting from living in the world, the families we were raised in, what it means to be a black woman in America, what it means to be an Asian male, whatever, you know, what it means to be skinny, short, fat, what. So, I mean, we have a lot of judgments on us, and that's really what I meant by lofty opinion and arguments. The isms of life are exterior to us, but influence us. So we've, we've got to, one, think about how do I nurture lies? What do I read? What do I watch on TV? Who do I spend time with? It's like I go to the Renaissance Church, Pastor Jordan is my pastor, but who are my other secret pastors? Yeah, who do I follow? Who are my other preachers? Who, who do I let preach in my life? Who are the people I admire, but I, I hope nobody notices I follow them? Who are the people that we don't even follow because we don't want people to see we follow them, but we keep checking their page? So, but, but we condition ourselves with certain things through entertainment, too, and entertainment is really edutainment. We're always being educated through what makes us laugh, what piques our curiosity. Um, so we do, we have to, but I think that's part of it. Where, where, what are the lies? But if I guess to, to add to that, we can even say, where did the lie come from? Is it something that my mom used to always say? Is it something I got from my dad based on his presence or his absence? Is it something my teacher said? I mean, to this day, I believe I struggle with math because I went to a school where one day I was sitting in class and I had this teacher who didn't like me and she came and she slapped my paper off my table in math class. And I mentioned that I wanted to be a lawyer and she told me I would be good at being a secretary. I still remember that. I just remember what it felt like, like being in that moment, being humiliated and being told that I couldn't achieve something. So yeah, we do, sometimes tracing it, kind of taking us home, going to the genesis of where these thoughts started will help us even understand how they've been able to be maintained in our lives and how do we nurture them. There are people that are dead and gone or will never apologize for the wounds that they created in us, but we still gotta get free. I'm sorry. Fasting? On fasting? Oh, I believe it's a great spiritual discipline. I do. I believe, I do believe, you know, when it talks about this kind doesn't come out but through prayer and fasting. Now, let me just tell you, I don't want to get too deep. I met with um, a, a, a scholar for, of New Testament. He actually said in the original language, when they looked at the original manuscripts, that they later added fasting to that scripture so that it actually just said, this kind come out through prayer. But anyway, but fasting is a biblical principle, and I believe that it is the denial of ourselves, a physical need to, to superimpose hunger, helps us get in touch with what we really need to be hungry for. Because every time I fast, I realize how much I don't depend on God. So I definitely encourage us to fast. 
and fast so that we can also commune with God. I mean, people fast for different reasons. I think sometimes we make a big deal about fasting, like it has to come at a particular season. But if you read in scripture, most fasting was like immediate in response to something. Sometimes God will just say, today, you could have just had fried chicken. Now, I ain't saying y'all got to fast, but I'm just saying, like, we like to, like, set it up. I'm going to start fasting on Sunday morning, and we eat like crazy on Saturday, and we're like, I'm going to fast on Sunday. But most fasts in the scripture were like an immediate response because they needed something from God. They needed a word from God. They needed God to move. So at any moment of the day, at any daytime, any season of life, it doesn't have to go inside with a Christian calendar you can begin to break your body, to subject yourself to physical hunger so that you can get in touch with your real need to be hungry for Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Lyons has to roll out in a second um, and head back to, to Philly. I do have one more question for you, Dr. Lyons, uh, before we thank God for you and pray for you. So everybody's been taking copious notes, and um, you've really brought so much to light. Can you talk a little bit about um, the pace and what we should expect as we start to implement these things in our lives. Is tomorrow mm-hmm. morning going to be 100% different? Oh, right. What, what, is this, what is this going to look like for us? Yeah. No, and I mean, I think everybody would probably know that's not the truth. It's a, it's a process. Um, sanctification is a process. From the moment we're justified until the moment we're glorified, it's all about looking less like ourselves and more like Jesus. And I would say, even if you're making a list, start small. Like, Maybe there's one major thing that you want to focus on. Maybe there's one major area, one major stronghold. Just begin to work through that one. Apply scripture to that, you know, and and be patient and know that God is gracious and merciful and that if he even has you thinking about these things, hey, even if you're uncomfortable and angry with everything that God said today, that's great because God is lovingly disrupting your life. Because he is relentless in his pursuit of us. So just know that God is with you. Don't isolate. Use community. How can you invite, as you're inviting God, you know, literally inviting him in to to expose things in our heart and to help us. Ask God to point you in the direction of maybe one or two people that you can actually talk through some of this with. And, um, and share. I mean, celebrate progress. The fact that you even begin to notice a thought, like... I just noticed I had that thought. Sometimes, you know, one of the things I teach um, my clients to do is if you're in the middle of something and you're already wild and gone with whatever it could be, stopping in the middle of it and saying, what's really going on? What's really going on right now? What, What am I feeling or what am I thinking that I'm not, that I'm reacting to but I'm not dealing with? So it's about becoming more aware, right? Awareness is a huge part. We're so unaware. We're so always outside of ourselves, right? We're either too much into us or we're not in us at all in relationship to who we are in Christ. So, yeah, just if, if all you have right now is an awareness, if you're, if, you're, if you're willing to become more aware, right, if you're willing to become more aware, that's a huge piece. And be okay with the discomfort of the process. We have this saying in acceptance and commitment therapy, Um, If you're not willing to have it, you've got it. So if you're not willing to be sad, you're going to be sad. If you're not willing to have anxiety sometimes, you're going to be anxious. If you're not willing to be alone sometimes, you're going to always experience every situation as being alone. So you have to be willing to be uncomfortable because the discomfort of life is the thing that makes us groan for heaven. 
that this is not our home, that we're not supposed to just get too comfortable. We're not supposed to build a mansion here. We're living in tents, and our mansion is in the future. Amen. Amen.